Hello and welcome to Square Hole, the podcast that explores neurodiversity, employment and the creative industries. I'm your host, Sazie Cliverture. We're joined by Dr. Jessica Eccles, a neuroscientist at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Dr. Eccles is a specialist in neurodiversity and supports neurodivergent adults. Our producer, Janook Sarkar, talks to Dr. Eccles about her work, getting a diagnosis, and what is literally happening in the mind of a neurodivergent individual. My name is Dr. Jessica Eccles, and I am something called a clinical academic psychiatrist. So I split my time between research and clinical practice. And my clinical practice is in an adult neurodevelopmental service. So we see autistic adults, adults with ADHD and Tourette syndrome um, uh, for diagnostic assessment and also um, for sort of signposting and support. So that's my um, that's my clinical work. And I've been a consultant in that service for two years now. Uh, but during my psychiatric training, I spent quite a bit of time um, in that service and similar services. Uh, my research is all to do with brain-body connections, which might not sound so related to neurodiversity and neurodivergence, but actually very much is. So my, um, my research started out in a um, physical characteristic called joint hypermobility, which is where you have flexible joints. And um, we did some brain imaging of that and found that the brains of the hypermobile people were slightly different to the um, non-hypermobile people in a part of the brain that processes emotion and fear, which might explain why there are more people who are hypermobile are anxious than you would expect by chance. And when we were when we were doing this work, there were some brain regions that seemed similar to some of the structural imaging studies of autism and ADHD. And at the time, uh, there were a few case reports about the association between flexible joints and um, uh, autism and ADHD nothing about Tourette's syndrome, just autism and ADHD. And so uh, we we started pursuing that line of, of work. Is there a relationship between autism, ADHD and flexible joints? And we just, um, we just published in February a paper showing that uh, neurodivergent people, so we looked at people with autism, ADHD and Tourette's syndrome, more likely to have flexible joints than um, the general population. And that also um, this, this relationship may explain why, unfortunately, some neurodivergent people experience issues like pain and dizziness on standing. So often when we think of neurodiversity and neurodivergent conditions, we just think about the brain and uh, maybe social interactions or um, thought processes or, or sensory sensitivities. But actually there's, there's a growing uh, interest in how neurodivergent bodies may be slightly different as well as neurodivergent brains. And our work is trying to, to bring the two together. 
And in fact, um, in Sussex, where our clinic is based, we're just setting up something called the Neurodivergent Brain Body Clinic, uh, where our neurodivergent patients who are experiencing physical issues, so sometimes things like gastro issues, joint issues, um, skin issues, allergy issues, they can come uh, to this clinic and we can try and take a holistic approach and help them navigate the very siloed healthcare system, which is you know, very difficult with you know, mental health services, physical health services, and hopefully try and join up some dots so that people um, can get the support that they need. And we think this is probably the uh, first such clinic in the country um, and is really important because um, colleagues at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, which is where I work, um, they did a study recently about barriers to healthcare for autistic people right. and found that um, autistic people really did have significant barriers to healthcare related to things like uh, use of the telephone uh, for calling the GP and appointments and things. Yep. So having um, trying to have a neurodivergent friendly accessible service uh, that makes sure that um, people's physical and mental health is taken seriously um, should be a should be a good thing. That's amazing, Jessica. I mean, already in your introduction about the work and the research that you're doing, it sounds like there's so much there already that we can find connections to. Um, and hopefully I'll draw out some more from the following questions. But thank mm. you so much for explaining the breadth of your work. It sounds amazing. And yeah, I'll be looking towards the end of the interview for some references that we can plug uh, towards your, um, your work. So um, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to tap in a little bit more into your expertise. Um, just to ask you, um, well, a bit more about your background, about what it is about neurodiversity that you felt so compelled to work within. Um, and, and maybe what led you to develop your career into this specialist area, because that's always fascinating to me. And I love the way that you talked about that holistic kind of viewpoint on everything. That's a, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I suppose um, kind of looking back on it, I wouldn't say there was a clear single, single mission, um, but uh, I was always very interested in integrating research and clinical practice. And so um, having um, been interested in hypermobility, which I'm a hypermobile person myself, uh, that really um, seeing so many hypermobile people who were neurodivergent um, really sort of sparked an interest in this. And then more so... Um, working clinically in a neurodevelopmental service. I just really enjoyed uh, my interactions with the neurodivergent patients. Uh, they're such interesting, um, interesting people with interesting life stories and really just generally incredibly pleasant and rewarding uh, to work with. And uh, as the years have gone on, it is also really I mean, there's been such a shift in terms of thinking positively uh, about neurodivergence. And actually, typically, when we make a diagnosis, um, we now say congratulations. 
and uh, people, people seem to respond to that uh, very well. I mean, a lot of people, unfortunately, the waiting lists are long. So many people have been on a journey of self-discovery prior to actual diagnosis. Um, but I think, I think the, the narrative of neurodivergent people is, is, is very interesting. And having, having a framework in which to understand that uh, can be so, so helpful. So I suppose during the course of our work, we, we started off quite traditionally um, thinking about, you know, disorders and looking for, for deficits and things. But as, as the years have gone on and uh, we've been learning so much from the neurodivergent community, uh, we are really trying to shift towards more of a strengths-based uh, approach and um, looking for differences rather than disorders. And the, the field that we're currently trying to explore more, which hopefully fits with your podcast, is, um, is about um, some of the more um, compelling positive aspects of neurodivergence and neurodiversity, such as creativity. And we, um, we're, we're actively researching in that field at the moment. That sounds brilliant. And yeah, it definitely does fit in with the premise of our podcast. And um, I really hear you when, yeah, that shift seems to be based around language as well and the way it's being used one way or the other, that difference between difference and disorder. It's really yeah powerful I think um, I, oh, I think it is I think but it's also it is important to acknowledge that although uh, that that people um, can still have difficulties as well as strengths and that we yeah. the world needs to help adjust uh, to people's differences to make sure that those differences don't become difficulties and um, but yes trying to depathologize the the language, I think, is I think it is important, um, but it's also it's something that I think we're all on a learning curve, and some of us are on different stages of that learning curve as well. And I mean, it's, it's only something that I've only re really kind of, in terms of the language, got to grips with in the last I don't know 18, 24 months. But uh, and we're learning all the time. We're learning all the time. Yeah, so it, it does feel like a very recent shift for a lot of people. And um, I hope that, yeah, listeners um, who will be listening and experiencing this podcast will be at different stages of that journey as well and get something from this. Um, so, yeah, getting a bit more technical now, if we can. <laughs> um, we were really interested to ask you from a neurological perspective, like, can you illustrate to anyone listening in, like, um, how would you explain what exactly neurodiversity is and what is literally happening in the brain of a neurodivergent person? If that's a simple thing to ask, might not be. Uh, yeah, very, very simple, <laughs> easy to do. No. Um, I think, I suppose we have to be clear that neurodiversity is, is a bit like biodiversity. Everyone is diverse in some ways and... Um, neurodivergent people are, um, are a particular uh, type of uh, difference from what is assumed to be the normal. But that, I mean, what is normal? Uh, it's very, it's very difficult. And 
The way that science often works is by comparing a group of people with a condition or a diagnosis to people they call healthy controls. And the, the language around this is also shifting. So uh, there was an excellent paper about um, avoiding non-ableist language in science, uh, which concludes that really we shouldn't use the word healthy control when uh, talking uh, in comparison to neurodivergent groups. We should talk about um, a comparison group, especially seeing as we don't know whether the people in the supposedly healthy controls have ever been screened for any neurodivergent condition. And in the, obviously it takes a long time to, um, to screen for um, ADHD, autism, Tourette syndrome, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. Um, so what we, what we don't really know is are we actually comparing apples and oranges or are the apples oranges in disguise? Do you see what I mean? Uh, yes, that, how, how many, how many really people, nice visual example? How many people in the um, how many people in the comparison group or the control group are in fact undiagnosed? Especially when you start to think about how we recruit um, comparators or control participants, often uh, colleagues in university environments um, or um, or friends of the researchers, and um, that 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 may that may be quite skewed. Or you put it out for an advert for people who want to be paid. Um, there are all sorts of biases there. So what I'm trying to say, and I know I haven't answered your question yet, is that um, what is the baseline? We don't know what the baseline really is. So that means making inference about the actual differences in neurodivergence quite difficult um, because it is my suspicion and I think it's shared by uh, say embracing complexity for example that there are probably a lot more neurodivergent people out there than uh, are diagnosed or the prevalence figures would indicate so maybe we say four percent of the population have ADHD or 3% are autistic. In reality, that could actually be much higher. It's just how these pe people are not necessarily getting diagnosed. Our diagnostic tools don't necessarily capture the experiences of women or gender non-conforming people or um, older people. So, um, so there's lots of ways in which the fundamental assumptions of our science may in fact be quite flawed. So that was just an introduction in, <laughs> into um, how can we know what we know? And I think the answer is, we're not sure. Uh, <laughs> so so there, are, there are lots of studies of, um, typically of children in fact, um, who are diagnosed, the literature is very much talking about ASD and ADHD and uh, compares them to what they call typically developing children, uh, which is a term that I, um, I really uh, don't like, um, but let us say to comparison children. And they, there, are, there are some differences in the brain, but what they tend to be, the studies 
until recently, definitely seem to be taking a very deficit-based um, approach. So it's kind of where is lack of empathy in the brain, that, that type of thing, or where is social communication or emotional differences in the brain. But we know from working with autistic people, people with ADHD, neurodivergent people, um, that this is not this is not the case that uh, neurodivergent people lack empathy or uh, can't socially communicate. It's just there are subtle differences. And so so really, I, I wouldn't want to say, oh, yes, this is in the brain of a neurodivergent person. There is this big hole uh, where empathy should be, because that's 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 not the case. Um, but what seems to be a theme emerging from the literature is the idea of a slightly of a brain that is tuned, fine tuned slightly differently. So in terms of sensory processing, um, we know that neurodivergent people often have over, well, over, that's, that's, that's not the right word, but are more sensitive or less sensitive, and it can vary in different situations to sensory stimuli. So one person might be quite, you know, um, not fussed uh, by noise, but um, find light quite overwhelming. So th there are, and that each person, each neurodivergent person's sensory profile is different, um, and can change in different situations. So if you're in a stress situation, some things that might um, previously have not hit your radar suddenly suddenly do. And probably quite a few people may have had that neurodivergent or not, that experience during lockdown and the pandemic of kind of re-entering the world and suddenly thinking the, the noises are too bright, the light, the noises are too loud, the lights are too bright, I've forgotten how to how to be in the world. And maybe that feeling, that feeling is, is, is often the case for some neurodivergent people in terms of sensory processing all of the time. Uh, so we, we, can, we can see that there are sensory processing differences in the, in the brains of um, neurodivergent people. Um, there are also, um, we know that there are differences in the, what we call, and I say this wrong all of the time, it's a bit of a malapropism, the fight and flight nervous system, the involuntary nervous system that is, um, <clears throat> that is, is, is to do with um, preparing for danger. And yeah. we know that there are some differences in the way that system is regulated. And that may be related to the work that we're doing about how the bodies of um, neurodivergent people may be slightly different in terms of how the cardiovascular system is functioning and the involuntary nervous system is functioning. And it is thought that possibly some of this, the, the way that this is calibrated, the involuntary nervous system, maybe a lot of uh, what uh, has typically been thought of as, you know, repetitive behaviors. So things like stimming are actually soothing mechanisms for trying to regulate the, um, the involuntary nervous system that is slightly um, out of calibration or overactive. Does, um, so, um, oh, could you explain for um, listeners that might not be familiar with stimming what that is? Ah, so um, stimming is sort of repetitive actions and movements 
that, I mean, a classic, very stereotyped example would be flapping, for, for example. But stimming can be much more subtle. It could be, you know, twirling your hair, fiddling with your, um, you know, your thumb and your finger, playing with your rings. But behaviours, repetitive, kind of body-focused, repetitive behaviours, um, which some people feel they need to suppress because um, society might think they were odd. But actually, these behaviours uh, are, are very important in, well, for several reasons. One of them is soothing um, in terms of potentially regulating this um, overactive um, flight or fright nervous system. And it seems that stimming probably calms that down. But also people find uh, that stimming helps with focus um, and uh, can help with some of the attention differences in neurodivergent people. So people often think of ADHD, and it's in the title, as a yes. disorder of attention. Of a, 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 well, not a disorder of attention, an, inatten an attention deficit, whereas that's not really the case. It's about the attention filter. You're either um, finding it difficult to sustain attention, particularly to mundane, boring things, or can become incredibly absorbed and find it difficult to shift attention out of a hyper-focused moment or essentially to come out of the rabbit hole uh, yes. can be... Um, can be very uh, difficult. So um, some neurodivergent people do find that uh, stimming behaviors are not only soothing, they can help maintain uh, focus and attention on things that would otherwise be difficult. Now, yes. having, having been talking about um, stimming, uh, yes. I might've got a bit confused about the question. We're talking about Sorry. the brain No, 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 it's It was fine. only brain because I asked for clarification on that just yeah. in case anyone didn't understand what stimming was um because no, talking, yeah, yeah i think that's a really important thing to describe so thank you um so the question was yeah what what is literally happening in the brain of a neurodivergent oh, person yes. so so that that is that is going on this integration between body and brain uh in terms of the, the nervous system in the rest of the body picking up signals and and then the the brain processing these and possibly changing kind of environmental behaviors um, to do with that. I think neuro and with this sort of sensitive theme in terms of sensory processing and the autonomic nervous system, which is the involuntary nervous system, uh, there is also, I think neurodivergent people often are um, sensitive to anxious feelings. And uh, we, we know, um, that there are um, activations and differences in the same part of the brain as we found in the hypermobile people in the amygdala, which is um, part of the brain, um, the, the older part of the brain that is involved in very sort of fundamental emotional and fear processing. So there is, there's a differences in, in sensing, sen the sensory senses, differences in the, um, bodily responses and interpreting the uh, autonomic, the involuntary nervous system, differences in emotional intensity, let us say, in fear, uh, potentially. And, uh, but there are also, I think, um, I think we will find uh, that there are 
There are differences in terms of filtering and processing uh, in terms of thought, uh, because we know that uh, neurodivergent people, particularly um, often uh, people with ADHD, are, are very good at shifting topic. So going from one, one thought to another. If, um, if you are someone who switches from topic to topic, it actually having a conversation with someone else who switches from topic to topic can actually work out really well. But sometimes if you're, if you're not, um, you can get this sort of um, mismatch between <laughs> the train tracks and the spider webs, if you see what I mean, uh, in, in, in terms of how thoughts come and go but you can imagine if you are someone whose thoughts branch off in all sorts of different directions that you that you can make interesting connections that perhaps other people uh, don't don't make there's also in terms of what's happening in the the brains of neurodivergent people is there are differences in attention and focus but these are not just literally listening differences or visual differences this is in terms of the degree of detail, the kind of the foreground and the background of everything, really. And um, so some people may have incredibly good attention to detail or incredibly good attention to the greater context. And you can imagine if you have good attention to detail, you may see things that other, other people don't see um, that can lead to... Um, some very creative and interesting thoughts and connections. So uh, it's sort of about, it's a, like a perspective really in, in terms of focus. And either at either end of that focus, so at the hyper-focus end or at the distracted, potentially distracted end, um, you can um, appreciate things that maybe others do not. I mean, I think that you have filled in so many pieces of a big jigsaw puzzle for me. Ah, well, that's saying good. All of that, um, being neurodiverse myself, and but being, well, the whole the whole reason why Lorna and I are, uh, are on this journey, creating this podcast, is because we got diagnosed later in life, and and kind of looking back, thinking about how this affects our careers and and creative processes so far, and I think that. And, and just navigating the world. And I think you've just answered a lot for me anyway. I hope it's answered a lot for listeners. Um, that was brilliant, thank you. Thank you. Um, so you've already mentioned some, but um, I guess when in your work, when you are diagnosing people, um, are there any other that you've not mentioned kind of signs or traits that are typically brought to you? And does that differ depending on the age I know that you only work with adults but you mentioned a bit about children but yeah is there any difference that, that you see there so we work broadly we see some people who are only 18 or 19 um, and we see people we, we have no upper age limit so uh, we see people in their 60s and their 70s most people I mean it varies some people um, have been referred because they themselves are questioning whether they have, whether they're neurodivergent. Um, so sometimes it's their care teams um, or their doctor. Um, and um, so, so some people come with a list of things. Um, we're like, look, we barely need to do the assessment here because it's all, 
all here. Um, no, I'm, I'm joking, uh, but we do send out people um, pre-assessment uh, questionnaires and information. Um, and sometimes you can see people have been thinking about this for a long time. I think that in my personal experience, a very, very interesting way of framing a neurodivergence assessment. I must be clear that we do not formally assess for dyslexia, dyspraxia or dyscalculia. Um, that's very hard as an adult to navigate getting those assessments because they don't strictly fall under um, psychiatric care. Autism, yes. ADHD are neurodevelopmental disorders. They are not um, psychiatric disorders, but they are diagnosed by psychiatrists often. But anyway, yeah. the, um, the thing that I find that can be really useful and take you in all sorts of directions that are relevant for an assessment is thinking about sensory things. And most people, because we've grown up inside our own bodies with our own ears and noses and uh, tongues and all of that, assume that their sensory experiences are, are probably exactly the same as everyone else's. Um, but this does not turn out to be the case. So um, it is really helpful to explore things like how are you around noises, uh, lights, um, temperature, which seems a strange one, but people do. And then there's a huge wealth of sensory information that can lead into other avenues that you might explore in a neurodevelopmental assessment about food and like food textures, food preferences, order of eating, um, eating in front of others. Uh, these these things can really um, give a valuable um, a valuable flavour that can inform other parts of the assessment. And then um, another thing is clothes. Uh, so I have a rheumatology colleague who said to me, Jessica, why, why are all my hypermobile patients taking the labels out of their clothes? I think it's probably because they're neurodiverse and have sensory sensitivities. And I'm not saying that all neurodivergent people take the labels out of their clothes. Um, or that all people who take the labels out of their clothes are neurodivergent. But it is a common feature. Uh, uh, labels and clothes, seams, either wanting things to be very loose fitting or tight fitting, because uh, some people really like the, the proprioceptive, which is the pressure that tight clothing can give. Some people find um, tight items really restrictive and horrible feelings, so they like to wear loose things. Uh, some people, um, so yeah, what I'm trying to get across is sensory information can give us a huge um, amount of uh, informative, um, informative information. Some people might uh, be very aversive to wool or love soft satiny things or really hate soft satiny things, mm. uh, tights. Uh, all of this type of stuff. There, there, there are so many different ways in which um, sensory profiles can be explored. And I, so I, I find that sensory is a, is a good place to start. And then from that, you can also find out about some of the other neurodivergent features so, or co-occurring conditions. Yeah. Yeah. That makes lots of sense, actually. And it's 
so brilliant to hear that there's so many connections with not just sensory processing and you're mentioning a lot about emotions like this is all building a really rounded picture um mm. that yeah I think gets it illustrates how much um there is to know about neurodiversity you know oh yeah no no, no so absolutely. much to learn about it um but yeah I guess what I was trying to get at with the sort of age like no oh, sorry yes, there's a difference in age oh no it's okay I was just trying to get to the bottom of like yeah whether there was a difference in what the reasons why they come to you for a diagnosis but also if there was any like if you would say there was any benefits of an earlier diagnosis oh I see yes. yeah oh no so I think um I think a lot of our our the people who come to us for a diagnosis uh, have often felt some sense of difference throughout their lives um, right. or, um, or, or have found that they have connected with other different people. Um, uh, so there, there is often a sense of being slightly different, um, but there is also um, because um, people, people expect people to behave and think in certain ways, a lot of uh, neurodivergent people who have, say, uh, in exclamation marks, managed to get through school, think, oh, I've, I've done this. This means I, I, I can't have a neurodivergent condition. Uh, but actually, what a lot of people have learned to do is uh, to mask, uh, to camouflage, uh, to compensate and may have developed and learned strategies um, that can actually, which, which can be really useful, but they can also be exhausting uh, and uh, lead to sort of fatigue and possibly even burnout at, at, at times because of the, yeah, the sheer, the sheer mental and physical exhaustion of trying to pass as, um, as a non-neurodivergent person. So those, that, and these things, uh, I'm not saying they're gender specific, this can happen to men, this can happen to women, this can happen to people who do not identify as male or female. Um, and I think this is why some people are not are diagnosed only later in life, is partly because obviously our understanding of neurodiversity, neurodivergence, neurodevelopmental conditions has really accelerated in the past um, since I've been at medical school, really, uh, but you know, since before that, so it, it's, it wouldn't be at all unusual for someone in their mid thirties to probably an older for this to have not come across anyone's radar, um, or it might have done in small ways. So it might have been identified as dyslexic, or know that they were in fact in clumsy, and they're probably dyspraxic but the term wasn't around or but people often don't get diagnosed with dyscalculia think they're bad at maths um so there might have been some uh, suggestions but in terms of a diagnosis of adhd or autism 30 35 40 years ago childhood even you know 20 years ago people were not so aware and i think you had to be you really had to stand out um from the crowd uh p potentially you know with real struggles around language or disruptive behavior um and um this is hopefully not so much the case now um and that people may be uh, picked up sooner especially as we understand more about the 
non you know male typical profile but so i think that there are quite a few reasons um why people may get a late diagnosis we also there seems to be something going on for um females assigned at birth who go through the menopause menopause and this seems to con you know distill a, a lot of um mental and physical health issues often come to the fore and these transitions the same as puberty may have been doing okay and then the hormonal influences of puberty suddenly uh, sort of the mask falls off a bit and uh yeah. and this is this is interesting where people and also other it's, the mask isn't just falling off because of um hormone differences uh, the other differences is you may be doing very well or okay in a very structured routine that you have always been in so you've had the same job for 10 years you know very predictable etc cetera, etc cetera. your environment is quite accommodating and then suddenly something happens and that changes and those sudden changes in life circumstances it doesn't have to be work it could be you know, you're living in the same house uh, and then suddenly you move and that that change can uh, throw up uh, so many challenges that features that were perhaps suppressed or or accommodated before wow. suddenly come to the foreground so there there are lots of reasons um why people might not be diagnosed until later in life the other thing that happens a lot actually and you, you see this is that uh people with children their children get diagnosed and as their children are being diagnosed they begin to wonder about themselves so that is a, a big thing and maybe now even grandparents wondering about their grandchildren uh being diagnosed so wow. that is that is a that is another factor in terms of people seeking diagnosis at a later age yeah definitely i I have that experience myself just being surrounded by more neurodivergent people made me realize I might want to get diagnosed myself so yeah that definitely worked for me as well but I guess would you say that there was more benefits to someone getting that diagnosis earlier on in life? I think it's actually a really hard one uh, in mm. terms of yes I think the the principal benefits of getting a diagnosis are self-understanding self-compassion, um, understanding for your, your whole uh, context in life, potentially, and then access to appropriate accommodations and reasonable adjustments, um, yes. be that support through disabled student allowance or government support through access to work or informal support or formal support from your employer. Those are all, and obviously protection under equality legislation. So all of those things are really important and also access to potential, I'm not saying you can treat neurodivergence, but, you know, um, medical or social interventions that may be helpful. Uh, so you need the construct and the label in order to do so. Uh, and um, so I think a diagnosis is a positive thing, but I also worry that there is still a lot of stigma uh, and uh, assumptions and stereotypes uh, that mean that um, 
people are worried about getting a diagnosis and what that might mean. Of course, getting a diagnosis is an entirely private thing. You don't have to, you don't have to <laughs> tell anyone if you don't want to. Your employer doesn't necessarily need to know. Uh, just that there is an issue that needs accommodation. So, but then the more people who are open about their uh, diagnoses, then hopefully the less the stereotypes. So it's um it's a really it's a really complicated um situation, and I think it's a would be a very fruitful area of research actually, and may be already happening. It's just not my field. In terms of qualitative research in late diagnosed um, or later diagnosed adults, how do you think your life would have been different were you diagnosed sooner? What would have been the advantages and disadvantages? I just yeah. don't know. But that would that that's a really interesting question, and I suspect it will be a mixed bag of mm. of things some positives, some negatives. Um, and of, of course, we don't have a time capsule. We can't do this. Every, everyone is in the social context that we're in at the moment. Um, and yeah, um, who yeah. knows? I think you've mentioned so many things that I thought, oh, we haven't had that come up yet. That's brilliant. Like the fact that you're talking about disabled students allowance and access to work. Like those are things that are quite new in terms of the spheres of creative industries, I think mm. in my experience, because I have been a disability advisor in a creative arts university um, where there was the dis disabled students allowance, which may be changing now anyway, because of government provision, and then access to work being a hidden thing that isn't introduced to those students as they're graduating no, it's you it's know, a really so important a bridge, thing yeah mm. um and then there is actually a resource now that's been created by a creative organization um to kind of make the process of access to work a little bit more visible to creative industries yeah. um and for freelancers so yes because we'll you can get it if you're self-employed um yes which isn't uh, really visible if you don't, or it hasn't been in the past, but they've sort of attempted to make it visible. But then also you were saying something earlier, which leads me on to my next question, because you were talking about other um, parts of like personal characteristics or identity, like it could be not just your age, but that you're male or female and masking or non-binary. Are there any other like, personal characteristics like intersections that you think or even another disability that you think are affecting something like the diagnosis of neurodiversity um again I'm not an expert in intersectionality mm. um but I wonder about uh, differences kind of ethnic differences and um how um, most of, well, for example, the hypermobility studies that I have been doing in which we found high rates of neurodivergence, the people taking part in these studies are typically white women in their kind of, I don't know, 25 to 55. Uh, we need more research in underrepresented groups and also understanding um, facilitators and barriers to diagnosis across, across cultures 
uh, which is not, um, as I said, is not my area of expertise, but I am sure is sorely needed. And um, and what what are what are the barriers and what would help uh, culturally and um, also uh, you know for older older people. So I think I think there's a lot more to understand. And I think in you know uh, in some neurodivergent support groups, there's a the, there's a lot of of women, uh, and this is sort of. Uh, a mismatch with what all of the papers tell you the representation of men certainly in my clinical practice uh, which might be skewed because i am a, a female doctor um i'm seeing at least as many women as as men um in my practice but yes i think there are other aspects that um that are intersecting in terms of other disabilities this is where i'm obviously really interested in my own work uh, and our work that we're doing in terms of joint hypermobility is just a physical manifestation of some underlying differences in how the body is structured and made up in terms of this stuff called the connective tissue. And uh, people with connective tissue differences may be more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome, more likely to have asthma, irritable bladder, um, gastro issues, reflux, um, dizziness on standing, um dizziness after a hot shower or a big meal uh there's a lot of, of allergies um there's a, a lot of physical invisible illness um phenomena uh that are going on that i think um uh that 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 may there may be a link there uh with some neuro with neurodivergence not all mobile people are neurodivergent or vice versa but there seems to be there seems to be an association, and if um, hypermobile people are more likely to experience physical health issues, then um, there there may be something at this intersect between physical and mental health, and the complexity of different problems, especially the history of a lot of people, especially females, being dismissed or really falling through the falling through the cracks in in mental and physical health care. Yeah. And you mentioned those symptoms that there's a lot of sensory yes. experiences in there as well, which kind of crosses the two. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, um, I guess you mentioned quite a few barriers, but are there any really prevalent ones that you can think of about getting diagnosed? For example, the cost of getting diagnosed. Um, oh. Well, no, I think the, the barriers are systemic in terms of there are not enough neurodevelopmental services to make the diagnosis, or maybe there needs to be a shift in terms of who can diagnose, given how common uh, neurodivergent conditions are. Should it really be that you need super specialist centres to diagnose such conditions? So there needs to be a shift in attitude and training. But yet the biggest barrier at the moment is if you do not have resources to private funds, um, you, um, you're at the mercy of the waiting list or at the mercy of the waiting list. And this a kind of seemingly attractive option of, of going private on the NHS. And then there are the, the loop around uh, that in terms of impacts on yeah you can just see um it is it's a really vicious circle so i we 
what we need to understand is how important neurodivergence is to health in general and why recognizing it not just to health but to 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 how recognizing it and accommodating it will mean that people um, are having you know better lives and that that needs to be commissioned you know built into the healthcare economics from a really at a really basic level but there's so much that needs to be done in terms of upskilling and um, you know whole systemic attitudes that I think this will take time but it is a it is a barrier um, uh, the waiting lists um, and it, and as I said before how are you to get diagnosed with dyslexia or dyspraxia or dyscalculia if you are not in education? Um, that I mean, higher education is pretty much the only place that that is, is possible. I've talked to colleagues before who wondered about getting dyslexia assessments within large NHS organisations and they're told they have yeah. to pay for it or at least pay yeah. for part of it. Yes. Yeah. So, and then you think, well, dyslexia, very common there are also common, straightforward things that be, that can be done uh, to make things easier for a dyslexic person. So um, yes, it, it yeah. does seem it does these do seem like barriers. To be honest, I think that word systemic barrier is yeah key, but really important point to raise. So thank you for anyone listening. Like, what advice would you give to someone who thinks that they might need an assessment? Um, and would that advice differ if it was, say, for a teacher or a lecturer or an employer, um, rather than the person themselves thinking that they might uh, need an assessment themselves? How would you, yeah, what advice would you give those two scenarios, if you see what I mean? Oh, I see. So I think if you're thinking about seeking a diagnosis yourself, it's it's important to kind of have a sense of what the things are that have made you feel that. Yeah. Uh, and it's also important to get that information from your teachers or lecturers as well, or your employer. If your employer says, well, I, think, I think you need an ADHD assessment, say, well, would you be able to talk me through the reasons why? Yeah. And then you can reflect on that. It is also helpful, if at all possible, to speak to family members and um, try and get a sense of how you were as a child. Uh, of course, this is this can be complex for all sorts of reasons and is not um, not uh, an absolute necessity. But most um, services like to hear from someone who um, has known you as a child to get a developmental history. So it can be useful to talk through with your parents. I mean, some or other caregivers. Sometimes this is helpful, sometimes this is not, um, and it's not the only basis of the assessment. Um, so if that's not possible, don't think, oh, I, 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 I can't get assessment. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think, and actually sometimes this is where the waiting list can actually be helpful, is it gives people time to do a bit of reading and, um, and uh, identify more why they think they are neurodivergent yes yeah that's really good advice um I guess just that one last thing that was about any type of support for neurodiverse learners that might be geared towards creativity or aid a creative person's learning um oh. is, do you think that there's anything out there 
specific? Oh yeah, I, th I think um, I think that there are. So I think with access to work and disabled students allowance, you can get access to neurodivergent coaching, ADHD coaching, coaching for autism, um, coaching for your um, workplace. But I think coaching that plays to your strengths is is so important, but also tries to balance things because this is a problem with a lot of. Um, problem can be an issue with neurodivergent people is sort of all or nothing uh, hyperactivity and exhaustion uh, hyper focus or distraction uh, complete absorption or um, feeling very uncomfortable trying to find the middle ground the balance in between these um, these kind of states of of of, of extremes um, but I think coaching could be a really, really helpful way of trying to unleash or, or to capitalize on your creativity to, um, to help with, you know, productivity and performance. Not that we should all be measured on our productivity <laughs> or on our performance, but feeling, no. feeling happy, happy at work. So Brilliant. not trying to be someone you're not, but making the most of who you are. Oh. That's a brilliant point to end on, Jessica. And thank you so much for your time. If anyone wanted to follow your research or work, we'll obviously get links from you of where you've been published. But is there anything that you'd specifically like to mention just to close off with? Yeah. No, so you can follow my work on at Bendy Brain on mm -hmm. uh, Twitter. And I and also if you just type my name into um, Google, the web page for Brighton Sussex Medical School or the University of Sussex will come up. Um, so you can um, check check those out and there's contact details for myself and my PA. That's fantastic. Well, I won't want to keep you any longer because I know you're on a different time zone. So I really can't tell you enough how much of a big thank you me and Lorna want to express to you for your time and expertise you've been listening to square hole on behalf of its creators lorna allen and janook sarkar we hope this episode has allowed you to consider some new pathways into your understanding of neurodiversity we would really like to give a massive thank you to all of our interviewees for giving us their time and knowledge and talking to us about their experiences. We'd also like to extend our huge thanks to our funders at the RSA and to Zoe Law, who helped fund the production of the podcast. A huge thank you to Ade Bambala and to Carrie Morrison for their editing. A big thank you to Angus Wilson from Eames Music for arranging our music theme. Finally, Thank you to you, all of our listeners, for joining us. We hope this helps you in some way on your journey. It has certainly helped us.